हेलो गाइस वेलकम टू अपग्रेड विद नकुल अगर एप्पल हर 11 महीने में अपने फोन अपग्रेड कर सकता है तो हम हर हफ्ते अपग्रेड क्यों नहीं हो सकते द पॉइंट ऑफ द शो इज वी मेक इंटरेस्टिंग पीपल दे गिव अस देयर प्रोडक्टिविटी हैक्स द टेक्नोलॉजी दे यूज और हम होंगे अपग्रेड उनके साथ हाय गाइस welcome to another very interesting episode and today i am so privileged to have pedo with me pedo is a short form and he is a brilliant nasa scientist who has turned into a filmmaker as well and i you would just love this podcast with him so welcome to the show pedo hi so i'm a bengali it's a uh... my name is bedobrato pain uh though in this country a lot of people call me dr pain uh, for some reason my my dad spelled it that way p a i n so i can like it dr pain so dr pain sounds like an avengers uh or or you know somebody of my age would be bond villain james bond villain. <laughs> avengers is too 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 gen z or whatever whichever gen it is and my my name actually in hindi the, the my first name actually would be vedvrat means who's taken the vrat of the vedas and all that's so why in bengali because bedobrat but your friends call you bedo my friends call you bedo so thanks for doing this um, so i've read your wikipedia page uh, you you are a nasa scientist yes you have so many patents in your name yes you are a movie director screenwriter yes are you planning to do are you planning to go to mars next or was what was this <laughs> actually you know i mean i think i think in one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, jurassic park movies there was say thing saying that there are two kinds of people people who are um, astronomers and people who are astronauts and ast- astronomers kind of observe everything from a distance and astronauts actually go there and do it and i think i'm more, much more of the astronomer kind uh, i mean i think we have even in, in in nasa we always used to have a huge fight between you know nasa had many centers i think 11 or 13 centers and um, we used to have a lot lot of fights between each other especially between with houston nasa houston and jpl because jpl was in charge of or still is in charge of uh, unmanned space exploration Uh, while Houston was all about right and in which NASA were you all about space manned space exploration right so that um and, and of course obviously it was a matter of money as it always is in everywhere it's, it's uh, ultimately it's a matter of access to resources and money and so whatever money will not be spent in Houston will be spent here and so that would that would be the fight and we always felt and i i i kind of believe in that that it's 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 uh, it's much more uh, you know much bigger bang for the buck so to say much bigger science science return when you do unmanned space exploration all the manned space exploration is always 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 far sexier as even the movie gravity has shown right i mean that's that's what you kind of you know you're uh, emotionally you are much more drawn to it um uh, i i remember i mean i mean i was in jpl there was there was a time when this challenger was was coming in for a land and everybody in the cafeteria were glued to the tv watching it land so i kind of asked hey haven't you seen a plane land before so i really got booed at that point so you know that kind of tells you what it is that there is a certain draw to 
humans doing it rather than a machine doing it. Yeah, it, it's like the difference between a documentary and a reality show. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the reality show is much more jazzed up, much more, uh, has much more humanity in it in a way. Uh, that's kind of weird, actually. But it's, it's, you like to see conflict. You like to see people, uh, you know, scale a barrier. I think that's, uh, that's what these reality shows, these, you know, this manned explore, uh, space exploration gives you, which, uh, you know, uh, you send a robot to Mars and it doesn't quite land. Who cares? Well, you care. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but when, when it's a human, uh, you you have seen the movie Martian or you've seen the movie Gravity. I mean, you know, the, the stakes are way, way, way higher. Yeah, uh, I love those movies, by the way. When when Elon is taking us to Mars, uh, yeah, I want to be the first maybe thousand ones. I, huh? I don't think I will be the first hundred ones because I won't be able to afford it. Hmm. But maybe the first I'd rather make ones. a movie about it. How about <laughs> I, I rather travel. <laughs> Good. So I have my 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 pr protagonist already. So uh, ha halfway done to, 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 to the movie. So um, you started out in India, and then yeah. so have you? Did you ever imagine that you'll be uh, working in NASA some someday? How did how how did that come about? I don't know. I mean, you know, I I actually don't know because. I was born in a very um, lower middle class family. I mean, my, my, my parents both uprooted from Bangladesh, meaning at that time, not Bangladesh, East Pakistan, and came, well, lock, stock and barrel, came, came, to, came to India. And my mother's family settled in Nimshit, and my father's family in, in Calcutta. So it was, you know, while growing up, it was um, uh, not, not happy, you know, financially not happy times. Uh, it was uh, difficult, very, very, very difficult. Uh, but slowly things kind of settled, you know, like, like when I was, I was, I was young, maybe when I was four or five years old, there were um, probably in our one bedroom apartment, there were uh, five, seven, eight people living, seven people living, I think. My, my father's father's uh, uncles, my father's brother, they're all, all there. I mean, this is how it was. And from there, it became a nuclear family. And by that time, uh, I think, I think it's my my mother. I mean, that that's something I, I have to give it to my mother. She kind of made me believe that I can do, uh, you know, much more than what might be expected of somebody in that um, social stature, social class. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence, even growing up. That oh yeah, I can achieve anything if I if I put my mind to it, I can achieve it. I mean. Honestly, I think I have become far more cynical now, and that comes with age, I think, uh, than I was, say, even even 20 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, that, you know, there was, growing up, there was this feeling, uh, and there was also, also the Bengal milieu that we can achieve anything. I mean, it's just, just sort of dream it, and it will happen. So, yeah, so I, I, I you know, no, I did not think of NASA, but I knew that I could do, I, I not knew, I kind of, dreamed that I could do a lot of things. So what are you up to these days in terms of physics? I would love to know. So it actually goes back, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, 
uh, it goes back to this huge fight between Niels Bohr and uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, Einstein never accepted quantum mechanics as a final thing. It's kind of, he always thought that it's a stopgap um, development, while Niels Bohr and Heisenberg, they all thought that it was, this is what it, it is to be. And the main issue was that they said that you cannot know how something comes to be. All you can do is to predict results. While Einstein always thought that you could actually go figure out how something goes from a place A to place B or how it evolves in time and so on. And that led to some very interesting debate, debates in, in this thing called Solvay conferences, uh, where uh, Einstein was trying to say, where, where uh, Heisenberg and Bohr were trying to say that there is a fundamental limit to knowledge. And Einstein was saying that there isn't. And that led to a series of discussions where Einstein was trying to show that, yeah, no, you can know both, in this case, both things meaning uh, in, in quantum uh, mechanical terms, position and momentum. Uh, stop me at any point of time if I'm being too, too uh, dense. Uh, that Bohr and, and Heisenberg were saying that you cannot know both position and momentum of a of a particle, whatever you want to call it, a quantum mechanical entity at the same time. You can only know one or the other, or you can know both of them to a certain level of uh, accuracy, not, not more than that. Einstein was trying to show that there is no such limit in nature, and you can know both of them um, equally well. And that, and that led to several conversations. And finally, Einstein came up with a paper, it was called EPR paper, I, paper written by Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen. And that seemed to indicate that, no, you can transcend that boundary and you can know both those variables with arbitrary accuracy. And Bohr immediately you know, trashed it. And this debate remained open till came John Bell in 1963 or something, sometime around that time. He formulated something called Bell's inequality where I don't want to go into into deep dive into that. That's that's a that's that will take a long time. But basically, he showed that if you do certain kinds of measurements um, on uh, what is called correlated particles, so correlated particles are, are something like this: correlated photons, for instance, something like this. When uh, in some processes you um, get uh, two photons come out, quanta of light come out in such a way that these light properties are linked with each other. Like if one of them has a um, right circular polarization, the other will have left circular polarization. I don't want to go into circular polarization, but just realize that it's kind of, kind of like, think of a bread. You know, if you if you take one part of the bread out there, you know exactly what the other part of the bread is. It's, it's something like of, that, of that kind. Yang kind of situation. Something of that sort. I mean, it's it's something like they're too correlated. If 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 one of them is high, the other is low. If one of them is left, the other is right. That that kind of stuff. You don't know whether it's going to be left or right, but if you know if one is left, the other is right. Uh, that kind of a situation. So with that, Bell John Bell showed that um, certain measurements will yield results that in classical domain you can never ever achieve. And Bell showed that in quantum land, 
you can get statistics that you can never get in real life. That is in, in our macro world that we live in. And that created a thing that kind of tend to indicate that Bohr is right after all and Einstein was wrong. There is some, some uh, essential limit of what you can know and what you cannot know. And, uh, and that has then be, since been tested and tested and tested. And we have come to a point where people tend to agree that yes, Bell's inequality exists in uh, quantum world where it does give you these weird um, uh, correlations that doesn't exist in our world, in, in the world, uh, in our perceptual world, in our, ma in our macro world. So my work, and what I'm trying to do, and God knows if I'll succeed, my work is, is to show that even in our macro world, we can get those weird correlations. So quantum mechanics is not so uh, esoteric after all. Even in a real world, we can create those correlations. So if I can show that, then I think we can go back to Einstein and say that, yeah, everything is knowable. But, but I agree to the philosophy uh, that you can never say that it's, there's limited knowledge in the world. There's, there's no limit. Well, I mean, you know, these are actually phys uh, like ac actual physical principles that have been developed. And so right now it's Bohr and uh, Heisenberg is winning and Einstein is losing as it stands. So I hope to get a kind of pull for Einstein for, for a bit. <laughs> or be the next Einstein. <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> Einstein was a different sort of a fellow man. He... I mean, once you realize what he had done, it's, it's unbelievable how, how he managed to do it. And by the way, that's another very interesting thing about special theory of relativity, that most of the equations which Einstein gave birth to as a special theory of relativity of the relativity of time, of E equal to MC squared, is actually much more than that. Um, other people kind of had derived it already and they didn't realize what they had derived. Einstein came and completely changed our way of looking at things. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story that, I mean, I, I actually, I, I, one of the things I want to do is to actually write the, uh, you know, uh, a short narrative about development of science and philosophy in the late 19th to the, you know, today, 21st century. Because science and, and philosophy has been very, very closely linked. By the way, I mean, uh, science is actually a pretty new term. I mean, even now, when you get your PhD, like I got, when I got my PhD, PhD stands for doctorate in philosophy. It's not doctorate in science. So, you know, science was called philosophy till, I think, mid uh, 19th century. It's somewhere in that mid-19th century, maybe early 19th century, that this philosophy was separated out and, and came the concept of arts and came the concept of science. And even now in the U.S., for instance, um, you know, in, in India, when we say arts, we mean humanities. I mean, some, some very specific kinds of stuff. People will be reading English and this and that and not science, not math, not physics, not chemistry. Uh, not in the U.S. In the U.S., if you get a B.A., Bachelor of Arts, 
doesn't mean that you're not doing science. In fact, a lot of the scientists, if you if you go into back into their antecedents, you'd find that they actually have a degree in, in, in BA in liberal arts. So in, in, in the US, there is this concept of liberal arts. And I think it's a very fascinating concept where at the college level, what you're being taught is not just kind of one stream, but a very diverse set of things. So, you know, somebody coming out of a college would have a degree, I mean, having their degree would have had read physics, uh, astronomy, um, ethics, uh, politics of Africa, uh, genomics, God knows what. I mean, it's a very, very diverse. I mean, the, 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 this education system is very different from how we are, our education system is. So that's another very, very big debate. I mean, discussion, actually. But why do you think so? I, I, you are an engineer. I am an engineer. We understand the pressure. But why is art so looked down upon as even as uh, uh, a serious pursuit of education in India? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, look, I mean, you know, I think um, I was born at a time when, uh, like in 70s, when there was all kinds of interesting stuff happening in Calcutta including political upsurges and upheavals and all the best brains. It's not necessary that all the best brains went into science. Many of them went into arts, you know, the, uh, into uh, very, I mean, there are very different ways of looking at it. I think, I think the point I'm trying to make is that I think our, our education system uh, has become very much driven by a career or a job not by learning or by becoming an individual for the society. So what I, I think we, it's almost come to be that we go to a college or you go to a school, you go to a university, so that coming out of the university, coming out of the college, you would land a great job. So hence the rise of, uh, you know, business administration, MBA. But isn't that supply demand, right? Uh, it is supply and demand for sure, but it's also a, an outlook. Like, you know, like the British started our education system. And if you think of our education system before the British, it was very different. The British started our education system because they needed clerks. They needed people who can follow orders, who can execute, and who can execute very well. So uh, the administrative services, today's administrative services, which at that time was called civil services, Indian civil services, were far more uh, based on not original thinking, not critical thinking, not challenging thinking, but execution, but knowledge. I mean, so that you know a whole bunch of things and you can, uh, given this problem, you can solve it. So our education system has been very problem solving rather than problem creating. So I personally believe an education system, a critical element of education system uh, has to be how to create problems because those who create problems become the CEOs. Those who sp uh, solve problems becomes the engineer. I'm j joking. I'm joking. <laughs> no, so no, this is really interesting. I, you have to get me to understand what is problem creation. Okay. So, um, and this is something actually I realized I was always a very good student in India. I was, you know, I was coming first in class and IIT. I did very, very well as a topper of the class and all that sort of stuff. 
But I realized when I came to America, and, and by the way, in, in, I mean, in favor of Indian ed education system, IIT system, was that it taught me so brilliantly that at some level, in the, in, when I came from master's, I went, did my master's and PhD, at master's level, I did not have to even blink my eyes. I practically knew all of those stuff from my undergrad. But I also realized the difference. The difference is that, okay, I know an equation. I can solve a problem. But what next? What do we do then? What new thing can we do with it? How can, you, how can we use the knowledge that I know to create something different? So it's a difference between invention and analysis. So I think Indians are taught to be very good analysts, not as good inventors. Inventing brain is a very different kind of a brain, which can correlate different kinds of uh, problems understand what is lacking like what you've done like you know you feel that okay this is not there so let me do this so so the inventor's brain is that okay there is a need that is not being fulfilled and maybe if i connect these two different things i can go, go to a uh, uh, create something different that kind of thinking is not there in indian today's indian education system um in in america i was i was like okay uh, to question why this is happening was more important than being able to solve a problem. So, you know, I mean, in, in one of the classes uh, of our semiconductor physics, uh, semiconductor devices, my professor, Eric Fossum, what he used to do is that he used to go to one of the top uh, device conferences in the world that happens, IEDM, uh, and right after that would be our finals. And he'd come back from, from that and will give us a device which we have never seen in our life. And we were asked, what does this device do? And if this device is to be made, how are you going to do it? So it allowed us to think both analytically and imaginatively. So this imaginative thinking is, I think, that is kind of lacking in Indian education. And but do you think maybe in a couple of decades that would change? Uh, no, I mean, I'm sure US would be in a similar position 50 years ago and things change, society matures. Will that happen in India as well? I mean, I'm sh look, I mean, nothing is static, <laughs> right? I mean, everything moves. Uh, so obviously, India is going to a lot of lot of changes. And of course, I have a lot of things to talk about. In fact, uh, uh, one of the big issues in India, I think we are uh, we are grappling with, is the concept of mediocrity, chalta hai attitude. Uh, I mean, that's another another discussion. Uh, jugar, actually, jugar has its positive and negative sides, and uh, and and you know, I mean, and and we have to understand what the positive sides are and what the negative sides are, because in jugar there is a great inventiveness, tremendous inventiveness that's there in jugar. But in, in Jugaad, there is also the negative side, which is to not really fundamentally change anything, to sort of make do with what we have. And I think that's that both positive and negative side, side of Jugaad, if you understand, I think we will really move forward. Yeah. Well, so let's, let's talk about CMOS. Um, and I know this is huge. How did it feel to, uh, did it, happen overnight or 
I no, I, I don't mean overnight like you just came up with it. It was, but uh, did the breakthrough or the the actual technology uh, you know come about, uh, and then everything like went crazy. Everybody was like, oh my god, what we have done. How did <laughs> actually nothing of that sort? Um, I mean, uh, by the way, another thing I would I would tell you about invention is that invention also requires um, a good uh, what salesperson. It's a very important thing. That's also something that is that we are not taught. I mean, once you invent, you have to be able to sell that as a big idea to to to, to the world. And then the big in money comes in. And I think that's where the entrepreneur mentality in, in, in the U.S. really uh, becomes a big, big, uh, big boom. Um, so anyway, but but coming back to, to, to CMOS. So 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 we were at uh, when I was at, at JPL, my my boss, Eric Fossum, he was uh, and we were uh, we didn't have access to many of the technologies. So at that time. Charge couple devices, CCDs were, were a very you know established technology. There were stalwarts in that in that field and so on. And but it was a very kind of uh, well, how should I say um, very limited access. I mean, you had to be part of the old boys club to have access to that technology to to do any experiment. So 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 we said, hey, I mean, actually, Eric kind of said that. I mean, you know. Let's just make a crappy sensor that we can do maybe in some other technology. And at least we can do some experimentation. And when the crappy sensor was made, all of a sudden we all realized that, hey, this can be big. There is no reason we have to go to that secret sauce of CCDs to make good image sensors. It can be done in the same technology as uh, computers are being made. Of course, there are a lot more changes that are needed, but once you get to the basic technology, you kind of can ride, sort of piggyback on the on top of the uh, uh, of uh, you know an existing multi-billion-dollar industry, which was the digital uh, processors that existed, right? I mean, that was the time, nineties, eighties, and nineties were the time all the CPUs were coming up. Moore's law was shrinking sizes and making computers readily available. And we kind of piggybacked on that. And, and that's where came Eric. I mean, he was very good at selling that idea. He took on the stalwarts head on and basically said that, look, I mean, he went to the point of saying CCDs are dinosaurs. So that created a huge ruckus, but it allowed a space for this technology to develop. If we, he didn't do that sell, selling, maybe the technology wouldn't have developed that that easily but when the, the invention happened we were like okay yeah it's interesting uh, and you know i mean it it went through exactly through all how inventions go through first people say ah it's a small idea ah it's good for writing papers it will never really see light of the day then when it does see light of the day then they they come around and say hey we were all I mean, we knew that. It's a simple idea. We always were, we were working on it as well. And they, they start jumping ship. And we saw it. All the CCD stalwarts and now CMOS gurus as well. Uh, we, we knew that. Well, we have been working on this. Um, what's a big deal? Then comes the next stage where they say that, oh, we know this better than anybody else. They're the same guys who, you know, five years ago were dissing your technology. <laughs> 
<laughs> so this is the typical, um, you know, the trajectory of, of any new invention. And, and we saw that. And, and by the way, I mean, the reason why this took off is um, cell phones. I mean, I mean, we didn't even think at that time that that's where the technology will, will find its, its, its home. We thought that we would be making um, better sensors for, for science, better sensors for, for NASA, uh, making smaller sensors because, you know, I mean, weight is a very big issue anytime you, you send stuff to space. Every kg of weight you add, it, it triples the cost. Uh, so saving weight was a very important thing. And, and we thought that this technology will miniaturize, miniaturize, make it easier to operate, you know, make it more compact. And the lower power, power is another big issue in, in, in space missions. So that's where we thought it would be. But the place where it went to, in a million years, we would never have predicted that mobile phones. I mean, think about it. In the mid 200s, mid, mid, you know, the first decade of, of the 21st century, mid 2000s, uh, Nokia was the undisputed leader of cell phones. Everybody had Nokia. Nobody had even heard of any other companies, right? And then came the camera in, in integration into, into, into cell phones, and all of a sudden, Nokia was nowhere because Nokia did not adopt that uh, uh, e uh, easily enough. Other companies came in and did it. And now we have a situation where cell phone cameras, I mean, cell phones, mobile phones are known not by their audio quality, but by what kind of camera they are carrying. Right. You know, when you go to go to buy an iPhone versus Samsung, you never compare. Oh, maybe this is a little bit better audio. That is a little bit better audio. You don't do that. You just say, oh, there's a 12 megapixel camera. That is a 16 megapixel camera. You know, why a technology gets adopted finally is, is ease of use. I mean, the reason why cell phone cameras have become so, so uh, ubiquitous is it's so easy to use. You're always, you carry it, pick it up, take a picture. With RED, you would take half an hour to set up the camera. With a DSLR, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of bulky. You would keep it in your bag. By the time you take it out of the bag, the, the thing has gone. Also, maybe the software part, the auto processing power, which uh, yeah. a cell phone brings with it. Yes. Uh, just yes, yes, yes. To consume or share. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that was a whole idea of the digital camera because, you know, when we first came up with, with the thing, it was uh, that it would immediately integrate with the digital world way better. That's what I was talking about, the ease of use, that with a touch of a button or, or with, a, with a small menu, you can take a picture, which you cannot do, which you could not do with the old technology. Yeah, so if you, if you talk to any serious startup in India right now, half of them are just working on image capturing and processing. Really? Yeah, that's, that's the new thing. Um, you know, is it, it, the TikTok world where uh, why is TikTok so um, so popular and was in India popular till they were banned was because their ability to capture video seamlessly and integrate in their own network. Um, so they do, so the uh, content creators didn't need to really uh, go on a Photoshop or an Adobe tool to process it. 
uh, add jazz to it. Uh, everything could be done on your mobile screen instantly. A couple of my friends were working on this app, which was um, uh, so in a in a half an hour session, you have taken some pictures, and then the app will process all those pictures and make a movie out of it, and add music and theme to it depending on what they think, what the app thinks the the story is about those pictures. You don't. <laughs> yep. <have to> <laughs> Yes, this is the world we are. I mean, uh, uh, again, this weekend, last, I mean, this Friday, I, I had another uh, another um, webinar on um, sort of, sort of, uh, are we in for a surprise in the entertainment world? And one of the things I was talking about was this uh, Lion King, 2019 Lion King. That entire thing was digital. I mean, it looked absolutely real. But everything was digital. It, this, is, this is a very new step in, in, in the development of, I mean, for me, one of the big questions is when would entire movie making process become digital? That you do not go to a real set. You do not go to a, uh, you know, uh, go to a location. You do not even have an actor. You create the actor. And so are you saying Shah Rukh Khan will just give his photographs? And then the movie will be made itself. A that I mean, we already have had examples of that. Um, you know, you you've seen that movie Irishman, um, Scorsese's Irishman. I didn't like the movie too much. I was I think it was way too long, and I don't know. It was it didn't really talk to me. But both De Niro and uh, who's the other guy, the Joe Pesci, both of them were de-aged. I mean, if you actually look at the picture, you'll see that, you know, Robert De Niro doesn't look like that today. Entirely digitally done. So a lot of this is, is available even today using real pictures. And then on top of that, you apply various, um, you know, various um, filters or software processing. But what I'm talking about is that you create a digital human being that a human being is entirely digital you entirely create it at your on your computer and you give him give him or her emotions you give them uh, you know style you give them attitude you give them uh, motion you give them uh, movement now has become very normal i mean if you don't look at a person's face and if you look at a person walking we can pretty much generate that digitally without a problem uh, problem is when you go close up uh, in many cases, pretty close, but pretty close is not good enough because our eye, this is our evolution of hu hu human beings. Our eye is very sensitive to the other human being because we use that to understand um, emotional cues, psychological cues, uh, the, the nonverbal communication. So our eye is very tuned to that. Anything that's off, our eye detects it and, and is kind of taken out of it. So that's why digital, creating digital humans is big, is, is it's a very big challenge. But we are kind of 99% there, but 99% doesn't do it. You need to go to 99.99999, I don't know how many nines. But it, it's, it's a fascinating world. I mean, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, automatic self-driving cars and, and digital humans will happen at the same time. Do you know there are already, um, you know, Twitter accounts run by AI? And yep. they have they have a face and everything, and yep. a normal person wouldn't even know that it's it's not no. a, a real person. Correct. And Correct. they have huge following and everything. Yep. 
Yep, yep, yep. Just the other day, I saw. I think there was an article in Guardian which showed there was an article, which was an article or an essay, written entirely by AI. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean we are in, in a very interesting world, and it's no not no longer futuristic. It's here and now. No, but what was the article good? It was pretty good. I mean, it was you know it was okay. I I, I read it. I would say, ah, oh, okay, all right, you know, but it wasn't bad. Nothing that I could tell that it's not it's not not written by a human being. Yeah. So if yeah, if you're just reading it normally, you wouldn't really have guessed it. I wouldn't have guessed it. I would have said, ah, you know, the author doesn't really have to have profound ideas, but it's a it's perfectly cogent. It's it makes a point and. Yeah, the point is a little trivial, uh, but you know you read so many trivial articles in in, in magazines, in newspapers, and so on. Right? I mean, I, if I were to grade it, I would grade it at just a bit above mediocre. But that's about it. But I could not tell that it's not written by a human being. But are you are you afraid of a Terminator kind of situation when <laughs> I think <laughs> AI has taken over? Uh, I know there are a large number of people that that are very very afraid of AI and are very very afraid of uh, of uh, uh, this kind of a monster. Uh, but I think you know if you go back in history and if this is one of the articles I've been planning to write hasn't written. This fear has always been there. Whenever a new technology comes in, you know it goes back to the invention of printing press. That printing press was supposed to, was was supposed to be you know, a lot of clergymen said I mean, who were the you know, sort of the, the, the main guys at that time that this is the bringing in of evil, and that has continued every time a technology advancement has been made. When big uh, you know steam uh, industrial revolution happened, there were luddites who wanted to break machinery. When computers came. we saw that people said that oh it's going to take away all our jobs nothing happened nothing of that sort happened and i think ai also uh, i i think i i look at it in this in the way where you know with my mac every year i see somebody has come up with a way of hacking into my mac <laughs> and every year i find mac comes up with some patch and i think ai with ai we will have that same kind of stuff yeah, i am no, worried I... about somebody else take using ai as a tool to do something than ai itself doing something we have seen again i am quoting you historically with wars the technology advancement is faster sure and so that may also turn the tide the sure. other way i i mean i yeah but but remember that whatever gets developed in in in, in during war times is negative yeah yeah so that's true it's very important for any 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 advancement to happen and that's that's a base <coughs> sorry that's a basic point i was i was trying to but uh, anyway i you know i mean uh, just speaking from my uh, thing that i'm now involved in movie mm-hmm. making uh, what really excites me right now is virtual product virtual production and digital humans even now um, you know we can create digital humans which are look very very real but evolution has made us very sensitive to facial expressions very sensitive to anything that is off in a face so that's why that's what makes 
makes digital uh, humans that much more difficult. But if we could have it, I think we can create uh, something really, really fantastic. And the second thing that I think is going to happen, which hasn't happened yet, is the limitation of the display. I mean, right now, everything that we do, uh, we are limited by the display. We are kind of, you know, display technology also has, has an interesting progression. I mean, you look at at one point of time, people went into movies because that's where they had a display. At home, you did not even have any display technologies available. Now you've gone to a point where you can watch very high quality, high dynamic range, high uh, resolution pictures on your lap. But still, it's limited to that field of view. You don't get the immersion experience. I think that immersion experience will happen with, with a holographic project. And that technology is, I think, something that is bound to come. I, I think, you know, two technologies that people are talking about that that, that will very big. Uh, I think I'm not as as hot on them. I'm hot on them, but not as hot. Is self-driving cars and AI. Uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you the, the two problems with, with them. One is the self-driving cars. Again, it's it's easy to go up to 99%, but for a car, for any consumer product, is that last 0.99999% is where the problem is. And that's where it's a, a reason. Already by 2019, there was supposed to be widespread use of uh, self-driving cars and not, not. It's great in most cases, but in the cases where it fails, it fails magnificent. And that part we haven't really solved. And the second problem with the AI is that AI... is still using very linear technique, but world is very non-linear. I'll give you a simple example. Take a feedback. In a feedback system, you have a forward uh, thing and a, and, a, and a feedback path. Loop. Yeah. Feedback loop, whatever. It's a simple first order feedback. It has two coefficients. One is a front loop gain and one is a feedback. So two things. If you were to write that as a linear equation, no amount of terms will be able to give you the final out because a feedback system inherently operates. So AI, even now, all the explosion has happened on the basis of linear linear uh, manipulation non-linear manipulation which was being tried with the neural network has not become and i think that's going to be the next phase once that happens i think ai is really so but are you are you afraid of a terminator kind of situation when <laughs> i think <laughs> AI has taken over? Uh, I know there are a large number of people that, that are very, very afraid of AI and are very, very afraid of, uh, of uh, this kind of uh, monster. Uh, but I think, you know, if you go back in history, and it, this is one of the articles I've been planning to write, hasn't written. This fear has always been there. Whenever a new technology comes in, you know, it goes back to the invention of printing press. That printing press was supposed to, was, was supposed to be, you know, a lot of clergymen said, I mean, who were the, you know, sort of the main guys at that time, that this is the bringing in of evil. And that has continued every time a technology advancement has been. When big, uh, you know, steam uh, industrial revolution happened, there were Luddite who wanted to break a machine. When computers came, we saw that people said that, oh, it's going to take away all our jobs. Nothing happened. Nothing of that sort. And I think AI also, uh, I I think I I look at it in in the way where, you know, with my Mac, every year I see somebody has come up with a way of hacking into my (laughs) And every year I find Mac comes up with some bad. And I think AI with AI, we will have that same kind of... I am worried about somebody else using AI as a tool to do something than AI itself doing something. Yeah, which which will happen. Look, yeah, there are the naughty ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
all I'm trying to say is that it's not that 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 the the the, the specter that's created is that AI itself will become so so self-aware that it will do stuff and harm humanity. It would be kind of a robots against humanity. This is mm. the typical stuff of um, science fiction movies. I think the bigger problem is a handful of people using tools like AI against ordinary people. And we see that already happening in form of surveillance. In India, we have this Pegasus software that has been used to snoop on people, to, to break into people's uh, uh, digital uh, space. So those are things that I more worry about than uh, sort of a robot uprising. That I no, think I am, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a thing of the move. I think I 100%, 110% agree. Whenever I've had a debate with anybody on AI, I'd say, I, I use the same thing when I said, hey, uh, when computers came, everybody said the jobs will be taken by computer. Now, somebody has to make the computers as well. Yeah. So those jobs have increased. And similarly, somebody has to make the AI better, stronger, faster. And those jobs will increase. So it's just upgradation of work rather than you looking at, you know, that jobs are going. Right. right. No, that that won't happen. That, that, that. So there is an interesting, another interesting thing that I have been thinking about, which is that, uh, you know, people talk about population problem, population being a problem. Actually, I think it's the other way around. Uh, all predictions are that by 2100, uh, world population will stabilize around anywhere between 10 and a half to 11 billion. It's going to be flat. After. Then what? Where does a new market come from? Yeah. We need, we need to find the aliens. <laughs> but you know, we need new new consumer market. If people think about population growth. I mean, even in India, if you look at the, uh, the second derivative of population growth, it's negative. So we are in a falling uh, rate of growth. It's growing, but it's growing at a, at a slower rate than than previous. Right. So. Actually, I think the bigger problem will happen if if the world becomes, population becomes stable, because that has not happened with human society in a long, long, long time. I mean, it's only in the back in the primitive days, you know, of uh, sort of uh, hunter-gatherer society that we had had a situation of very stable population. Ever since agriculture, population has been constantly on the, and for now, for the first time, population stable. Then what? That's oh, what very interesting. That so I I've I've never thought about it like that. My always uh, for next fifty years and. I run Cashify, so I always think, oh, the population is increasing. My market size will keep increasing, so I don't have a problem uh, for my business. But I have not gone to the extent of 100 years. So, yeah, yeah I mean, that could be a challenge. It's actually not even 100 years. We are 2020 there. They were saying by 2100. 80 years. 80 yeah. years, maybe seven. I mean, I saw the numbers by 2050, things were, were becoming pretty flat. Hmm. Now, these are all, these are questions. I mean, so honestly, I think this is a much bigger problem than, say, climate. That's, that's like, a whole different debate now. It's a whole different debate. <laughs> I can talk about it. That we need another one hour. <laughs> No, but uh, what you said about self-driving car, my the only way it will work for me in India is that if everybody uh, yeah. is being driven through a self-driving car, <laughs> otherwise <laughs> the cows itself will take care of it. I, <laughs> okay, so let's not talk about India and that because India's <laughs> road infrastructure is at, at its infancy. But talking about US, I have always thought about, and this is my idea, and I think we should have very blocky car so that when one person is driving it becomes almost like a motorcycle when two people come in somehow quickly add 
and make it a two-people uh, vehicle or make a four-people vehicle or an eight-people vehicle. So I think I, I kind of I kind of think of things in a very blocky way. Hmm. That's a solution. I think. <laughs> Lim- limited into thinking that, okay, it has to be two-person thing or a four-person thing or eight-person. I think our things should be more on things. As you need, you create ad block. Yes. So if you, if, you, if, you, if you think from a linear point of view, yes, it works. But if you... If you think from a society point of view, it won't work. Well, I mean, you know, you would have just as you have a car rental, you get get there and get that block, and then you know it would automatically assemble. There would be a robot that within within two minutes automatically assemble it. Yeah. And maybe you go there and say, "Sorry, boss, we don't have the two two person module today." Mm-hmm. But modularity is, I think, the way to go for for transporting rather than uh, I know fully fully public transportation doesn't work or fully individual transportation. Right. So I work in tech startups and there are startups which are pitching me voice bots, which would do uh, my customer support calls uh, to the customer in the voice and would be as good as uh, chat bots. Now, the sound of it is great for me as an entrepreneur, but still scary. It is scary, but and I think I think it would happen as it happens with all technologies. When a technology is introduced for a short duration, they have the leg up because nobody knows how to break it. But very soon, somebody or the other will break it. You can, you would be, like what we are seeing right now. We cannot tell that it's AI generated. There would be some other AI that would come out and, and tell you what is AI generated and what is not. I, it, technology goes like this. I mean, it's it's always the surveillance and counter surveillance uh, goes hand in hand, right? And then very quickly it becomes uh, uh, part of your your regular usage that you forget. Like you know, I, I remember a funny thing. You know, I think my generation, our generation, has seen the largest change. We have gone from a time when I when I grew up, I we didn't have a fridge in the house. There was no refrigerator in the house. To today's, you know, where we're talking about digital humans. Uh, but in 80s, mid 80s, when uh, we first saw fax, uh, so my friend sent a fax, he put the thing in and it did whatever it did, that those true tune sounds. And then the paper came back as it would, right? It has, it's, it sent the transmission. My friend was completely zonked. Is it like, Hey, the thing came back. It didn't go. So I said, what did you think? That it will is going to tear it into small pieces and send it across to the, to the other side? It doesn't happen. So when new technology comes, there is always a wonder. There is always a, a wondrousness. There is always a fear. There's always a completely, you know, readjusting your ideas. That always happens. And very soon it becomes a blah thing. I mean, you know, uh, like uh, self-driving cars, at one point of at at some point of time, people will forget that you actually had to sit and hold a, a wheel. I mean, like already people have forgotten stick shift. I mean, in America, you cannot buy a stick shift car unless it's a high-end uh, sports car or something. You can't buy it. I had to special order my my stick shift car. So that's what happens when you get used to technology and what seems so novel, what seems so out of the way, what seems so, I mean, how is it magical? Um, Becomes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's easy. We get used to things very quickly. I want to do a tangent question. 
CMOS and you hold the patent, right? Correct. You still get royalty for that? No more. 25 years. I mean, it's it's funny how quickly things have gone. The I mean, not just me, but a bunch of us hold the patents. Um, but the invention, the main invention is 1992. And by the way, the, even when I say we own the patent, we hold the patent, the patent is actually held by Caltech because JPL has a very weird uh, uh, arrangement where we were all Caltech employees. So Caltech is the one who owns the patents. The named inventors are us. And then you get some part of the royalty. We get part of, we got part of the royalty. We did. Uh, but as of 2017, we stopped getting royalties because everybody said bye-bye. But you kept inventing more things, right? Sure, sure. I mean, those, I mean, you know, look, the point is that invention itself is, patent itself is not enough unless that is used and used in a big way. Right. You don't get royal. I mean, you know, yeah, you'll get royalty, but that would buy your toothpaste for a month. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a few other patents that might um, come into play. So we'll see. Uh, by the way, I mean, there was the, the patent battle was a very interesting battle. So initially, nobody, initially, I remember AT&T was a very big player in, the, in this area uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the beginning. And they, they're, they're engineers. The technologists told us that, um, that we have been told, just go and do whatever you want to do. We have set aside some $1 billion in our, for, legal battles mm -hmm. so their whole idea was that they will not pay us royalties they'll just pay their 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 lawyers fees but then it, it kind of went through many different iterations finally there was a there's a, a legal firm that came pro bono and uh, they fought for, on behalf of caltech and and they, i think the first who was the first company i think it was sony that first paid up i think if i remember correctly and then everybody kind of fell in line. Uh, the best was with uh, with uh, ST Microelectronics. <laughs> the story is that so the ST Microelectronics was dodging. So they were in, based in in America uh, in in Europe, so it was anyway difficult to serve the papers. So they couldn't serve the papers. Uh, their CEO or their president, whosoever, will come to conference and quickly vanish before papers could be served. So finally, they actually got hold of a, uh, I don't know how to say it um, uh, in a politically correct way, but uh, let me not be politically correct, a big boob woman. And uh, she started flirting with him and flirted and flirted. And then at the end, she served in the papers. <laughs> Serves them. Seriously. But uh, yeah, there are lots of funny stories. So how many, how many patents do you have right now? In your name. Right now, I think I have to, I have to get, I think it's 96. But remember, a lot of the patents are, are derivative patents. I mean, you know, one, see, what's, what is a patent after all? I mean, a patent is a very business proposition, by the way. It's a business proposition that tells you this is how, this is what we have invented and how we have made it. And it prevents another party from making the same thing in the same way. So what you have to do in a, in a patent is that you have to, you have to be broad enough to include lots of things because if you have A, B, C, D and somebody comes and says A, B, C, E and if that's not covered by your patent, they say that we don't have to give you royalty because we are, we are making A, B, C, E, not A, B, C, D. 
right? Writing the broad way that you 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 cover a, a lot of things, but you also have to be narrow. So somebody says that it's directly identifiable. To make it broad, it becomes vague sometimes. Um, so so bottom line is that you have to go and after one invention, you create ten different fences around it. Each of them is a patent, right? Maybe 12 different fences, 12 different things that you make sure that they, they don't cover. Like, you know, you know one of the uh, backside illumination uh, patterns, that, that's one of the mistakes I made, that I left something out and, and, and other people started using that method, not using my method. So a patent is to preclude somebody else from making uh, your way. So if they can find slightly different way of doing it, then they're not in violation of the patent. So a patent is is has a lot of art built to it, built into it, meaning meaning uh, this kind of uh, uh, salesmanship's art so that you can think ahead what others might be doing and you want to prevent them. Or if they use yours, give them, give a royalty. Art is also so wide, right? Yes. Uh, you, you, you could have written a book. Uh, you could have drawn a painting. Why movies? Um... As I said, I think, you know, growing up in, in Bengal, uh, movies always had a very specific uh, appeal to all of us. Um, yeah, writing a book, of course, you know, I, I do want to plan to write. There are many different things that I want to write. Uh, I like to sing. You know, that, that's another thing that I could have pursued. I like to I like to paint. And that's another thing that I would want to pursue. But uh, it's sort of... Uh, uh, it looked like there were stories to tell and I would want to tell those stories. And, and, and it, in today's world, it seemed like film, I mean, at least sitting in, in 2010, seemed like uh, movies was the best um, avenue to tell those stories. Um, you know, you can reach out to way more people. That's what it felt like. And I think world has changed in the last 10 years a lot more. And... Uh, if I were sitting 10 years back, would I be going necessarily into movies? Uh, maybe not. But uh, here I was. I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, this is a medium where I can tell stories that I would want to tell. I want to... Um, and, I, you know, I think, honestly, movies have a connect with people that is far beyond, um, you know, books or painting. It's a, it's a very... Um, you know, now, of course, we have social media, so that means something different. But historically, movies have always been a very social medium where you can reach out to a large number of people. You can make difference in, 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 a, in a very big way. And that's, in the back of my mind, I think that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I want to do. Of course, as I said, things are moving so rapidly. There are lots of different things that have come in, in you know, a lot of different tools that have become available now. For, for our listeners, your movie name was Chittagong. My name, movie name is Chittagong. It's based on this uh, uprising in 1930s uh, British India in, in the place called Chittagong, which is actually a town right now in, in, in Bangladesh. Uh, and uh, there's some there's a, there's a story of uh, these 60 kids, kids meaning ranging from the age of 14 to, to, to 25, uh, and a school teacher who, for the first time, uh, kicked the British out of a town uh, in India. This is this hadn't happened, 
And uh, my story is of the youngest participant in the, in the, or at least one of the youngest participants in that in that uprising, uh, Junku Subodroy, and uh, it's sort of his journey, his his kind of finding himself. And the story ends. I, I will not tell you how the story ends. The story ends in a, it, but it doesn't end in the in the traditional sort of you know failure way. Uh, that much I'll tell you, which is. A very different, which is a departure from how all the sort of pit, quote unquote patriotic movies are made, where it kind of ends in a failure. Uh, but leave that aside. So uh, another movie called Kile Ham Jijanse, starring Abhishek Bachchan and Deepika Padukone, and um, directed by Ashutosh Gowariker, got made on the, on the same uh, same subject, and all kinds of shenanigans happened. Um, I also had many other setbacks uh, in the in the process, uh, personal setbacks. Um, uh, to cut the long story short, that movie got released and I did not uh, in 2010, and that movie tanked within a day. Yeah, I, I've I've actually never heard of that title, <laughs> and was, I've heard of Chittagong. So it was one of the uh, d- biggest disaster, which which also prevented PVR. It was PVR sort of first and last uh, producerial venture. So it it caused a lot of problems. I mean, on one hand, it kind of I could not release my movies. I mean, you know, it was a it was, all kinds of stuff happened. People backed out, so on and so forth. So I had to wait, and because that movie had ha- come and had done so disastrously. Obviously, I, I had to wait. So after two years, and uh, thanks in in large parts to um, Anurag Kashyap, uh, we got the the movie released, and uh, and uh, and it did it did pretty well. More than anything else, it it won the national award as the best debut director. It got Prasoon Joshi the best uh, song, Shankar Hassan Loy the best music. Uh, so you know, so it it did have a have a huge placement as a, as a as a result and it won international film festivals it won in sedona film festival the best best movie in, in montreal so you know so it it took a life of its own uh, and i think um, in the what i've realized is that sometimes when you have to do something you just have to go for it you just i mean i think this is something i was uh, listening to um um Steve Jobs the other day, and he had also said something similar that if you have an idea, just go for it. Don't think and make the full plan and then try to do it. You just have to, you just have to jump in, and 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 that's sort of what I did. Uh, it's 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 interesting how uh, everything could have gone wrong, and it it did go wrong. It everything did go wrong, and yet uh, something very beautiful came out of it. Uh, you yourself being a scientist mm-hmm. i would you i would peg you for a science fiction guy <laughs> why well, would you I do mean, a period piece <laughs> why would you not do a science fiction genre well as i said i i i'm i'm many different things history is one of my favorite things you know i mean i i love history history is, is a very interesting uh, uh topic you know in history it requires an analytical skill that that's unparalleled um it's uh, because you do you have hmm. 
no it's true so tell me one thing why why doesn't india produce science fiction movies why do we have the same same setting is that commercially doesn't make sense or we lack imagination we don't lack imagination indians don't lack imagination indians are a very imaginative people i mean in jugar is probably a good example of the imaginative part of it although it has its own set of problems but imagination is never in short supply in india i think what's in short supply are you know are business people having imagination like like you go you know movie we almost always think that it it begins with uh, with somebody writing a story or a director thinking i want to make the movie actually a movie happens from backwards movie happens from the distributor you know, the distributor says yeah this kind of movie can be put in, in this kind of theaters in this many prints therefore it can make that much money therefore it the movie must be made in this much budget and therefore this producer can get this kind of actor this is how a movie making happens <clears throat> while creatively it goes exactly the other way, way, way around creatively we start with a story and then we say okay who can we have as the actor who can we have as the director of photography who can we have as the director who can we have as this palana dimkara and then we'll create this product without thinking about the the end game and yet those who are in charge of putting that movie in the in the you know in 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 front of the viewers and that's a very big thing because a movie making takes a lot of effort it takes a lot of money and therefore it, the stakes are that much higher so it, as a result it's, it's a small coterie of people gets to control what content goes out in the in the public it's true in the us it's true in india in india it's i think it's amongst the producers and distributors uh not of the indie films i'm talking about the big big budget films or the or the, the, the bollywood proper there is a tremendous lack of risk taking tremendous lack of imagination tremendous lack of aesthetics and a tremendous lack of looking for something new you know i mean i think this goes back into something about india that in in, in the us you make money by create bringing something new you make money by creating giving new better quality not so in india in india it's chalta hai and that i think is 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 putting one of the biggest breaks in india moving forward not just in movie making but in in pretty much every field um so yeah i mean you know do we have uh, visionary producers and distributors in india today rarely big budget again i'm not talking about indie in, in indie film uh, indie films in regional films lot of fantastic content is being produced <clears throat> and i would say one more thing i think this uh, uh advent of the of the the web series or, or you know the ott yeah, i think uh, that will change the scene has has changed is changing and i just hope that the same set of people doesn't go and inhabit that space because if it's the the your usual tv people and your usual movie people go and inhabit the amazon uh uh netflix space we will be straddled with shit uh, yet again i mean i really think netflix amazons of the world bring completely fresh people 
Pero I had such a wonderful time talking to you and I can't tell you I'm just thinking about when do we do the next episode with you again. <laughs> okay, as soon as I announce my next movie, we are doing an episode. Sure. And then Done. I will talk about how you craft stories. What <laughs> what what's the science of storytelling? No, I I I have so many multiple topics. I can I talking. We can talk about history. We can talk about future. We can talk about movies. We can talk about quantum mechanics. Of course, I mean I would love can, to talk about say my take on five technologies that would make next. You know that would be the thing for next hundred years. Uh, but thanks a lot for uh, spending time with me and you know just enriching my mind. Um, it has been fantastic and uh, i am looking forward to your new venture movie web series whatever it is going to be and uh, wishing you best of luck for that thank you so much we will chat very very soon i'm sure so guys upgrade hua kya you were listening to upgrade with nakul a production of the podium talking don't forget to like and subscribe